podcast of record for the discussion of health or on policy. This episode was recorded on August 9th, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. Now, some of you may have noticed that Twill has been on something of a hiatus this summer. I'm afraid other projects have intruded. However, going forward, I will try and put out new episodes as newsworthy issues arise and as time allows. This episode, recorded at the 2018 SEALS conference, I was lucky enough to participate in some great sessions, compare notes with some of my favorite health law professors. Frankly, I forget whose idea it was, but four of us came together as a panel to discuss healthcare in the era of the Trump administration. I was joined by Nicole Huberfell, Professor of Health Law, Ethics and Human Rights, Health Law, Policy and Management at Boston University School of Public Health, Zach Bach, Assistant Professor of Law and Wilkinson Jr., Research Professor at the University of Tennessee, and Jennifer Barr, Professor of Law in the College of Law at the University of Cincinnati, with a joint appointment in the Department of Internal Medicine at the College of Medicine there. She's currently a visiting scholar at the O'Neill Institute for Local and Global Health Law at Georgetown University Law. Center. Now, this was a panel, not a typical studio recording, uh, so uh, to get the most out of it, you may wish to download our slides, the linked at twill.com. In this second part of our panel, Nicole Huberfeld leads us through health reform, Medicaid, and healthcare federalism, with particular emphasis on the Section 1115 waiver process and the Trump administration's endorsement of the so called work requirement. I am talking today about the things that I talk about, health reform, Medicaid, and healthcare federalism. And this talk actually derives from a couple of papers and or other things that I've been writing. And so to the extent that you have feedback, I'm actually really happy to have it because some of these are works in progress, some are out already. So for example, I'm drawing from a chapter that I'm writing for a book on federalism and poverty. Um, and that's where some of the more controversial aspects of this come from. And uh, I'm also drawing on that huge multi-year study that I did of the implementation of the ACA, which just came out in Stanford Law Review with my co-author, Abby Gluck, and a couple of spin-off pieces that we did from that, from interviewing all of the stakeholders who were involved in implementing Medicaid expansion and the exchanges. I have another smaller piece coming out, sort of walking through Stewart versus Azar. And so uh, all of that is to say that uh, there's room for feedback here because I'm going to incorporate it into something I'm working on or something coming out. So there, there's more to read if you're interested in any of this, and, and I'm happy to have your questions at the end. So Nick did a great job setting us up to talk about what's going on with the ACA. I want to start with a pretty broad lens, but just very briefly, because people in this room know what's going on. And then I want to narrow the lens and talk about some of the more controversial aspects of what's been going on with Medicaid expansion. And then I want to broaden the lens again and think a little bit about what might come next, what could happen with health reform going forward, um, and, and try not to think so specifically about the very moment that we're living in. This is basically what we think the ACA is supposed to do, right? All of these things are supposed to get us to universe universal coverage, the principle of universality that is being driven in the law itself. Anything that's in red is jeopardized right now in some way, either by law or by regulatory action. And so I think it's helpful to see that everything, basically, except for employer-sponsored coverage, has some kind of pressure on it in this moment from the Trump administration. And again, as Nick rightfully said, whether you think these are good things or bad things, it's worth it to understand that the law itself is a baseline from which this administration is operating and is operating sometimes in ways that courts are not telling us are unlawful. So here 
You may remember when President Trump was campaigning, he said, insurance for everybody. But that's not what he's signing here. What he's signing here is the executive order he signed on his first day in office, which told us that he thought the ACA should no longer be the law of the land. And there was no replacement plan. It was simply an executive order instructing everyone as to his view of the Affordable Care Act. And so it says, it's the policy of my administration to seek the prompt repeal of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, at least they called it by the right name. And uh, he says that they're going to minimize unwarranted economic and regulatory burdens of the act and prepare to afford the states more flexibility and control to create a more free and open healthcare market. More flexibility and control for the states. Hold on to that, because I want to talk about that more. So we get some important arrows telling us what the executive branch is up to when it comes to the Trump administration right from day one. Now, there are ways to think about this, and you can sort of work through what some of the big features of the ACA are. Again, Nick did a great job setting us up for that. And so we know that there's the tax penalty repeal. We know that there's Medicaid waivers and work requirements, which I'll talk about in a moment. There's a big theme here, which is that if you actually take a minute to read this chart that I've created, in every one of these, the ACA correlate that is most at stake is universal coverage. It is very clear that we are not going for universal coverage, but rather the dismantling of the law that facilitates it. So universality is what's at stake in these moves. Now, the administration has been going about this in different ways. So for example, you may recall late in the Obama administration, some states were attempting to prevent Planned Parenthood from being reimbursed by Medicaid because of the kerfuffle surrounding the sale of fetal parts, right? Obama administration said, actually, the law of Medicaid requires you to pay any willing provider unless you have a good reason to exclude them, like, oh, you know, a doctor committing malpractice that kills people, right? That's someone who can be excluded from Medicaid reimbursement. Otherwise, you can't just randomly exclude any provider who wants to participate as a Medicaid healthcare provider. Brian Neal, the director of CMCS, comes along and says, no, we're going to get rid of that. And now if states you feel like you want to stop paying Planned Parenthood as a Medicaid provider, we're open to the idea. Idea, go for it. Now that's just one example. It's a fairly minor one because most states are still trying to pay any provider who's willing to serve Medicaid populations. But it's a small example of how there are these pushes. There's pressure in all of these different places. And it's very hard to keep track of all of the different places where we're playing whack-a-mole right now. So what is going on with Medicaid expansion? This has been the major question ever since, I don't know, 2012, let's say, NFIB versus Sibelius. And it became a harder and harder question the farther we got into the Obama administration because the states that we think of as blue states pretty quickly caught on to the fact that there was money to be had, that covering people would actually be cheaper in the long run. And so it very quickly became this sort of narrative of a binary, right? This red state, blue state binary. But it is so much more complicated than that. So much more complicated than that. And so what we see here is, I think, Kaiser Family Foundation finally catching on to the fact that it is not a binary, right? They're starting to show in their maps, and I love their maps, that we have the states that have opted in, we have states that are considering expansion, and we have states that are saying they're not considering expansion, but behind the scenes they might be. So when it says not adopted, that's deliberate language. So the ones that you see on this map that are royal blue are states that have ballot initiatives coming up. So there are certain states that are following the lead of Maine. You may recall that in Maine, the voters voted to expand Medicaid in the state after the legislature voted five or six times and they were vetoed every time by Governor LePage, who is now refusing to implement the ballot initiative 
A court has told him you can't do that. He says, I'll go to jail for it. And so we'll see. <laughs> In the meantime, three more ballot initiatives coming up. So this is one to watch because it is the voice of the people, right? If democracy is the voice of the people, it's fascinating that Idaho, Utah, and Nebraska states that in the ultra simple binary we would count as red have voter ballot initiatives coming up. I encourage us to stop thinking in terms of red and blue. It is too simplistic. And this is just one example of that. So in this moment, if we had to count, we would say 17 states are still opted out of Medicaid expansion. But the question is, what are they doing to get to it? So one thing is, of course, ballot initiatives. Another that arose during the time of the Obama administration and that continues to be important now, a durable feature of Medicaid expansion, is the negotiation of waivers within Medicaid. So what's a Medicaid waiver? If you're not up on this, because it is highly technical, A, there are multiple kinds of waiver that one can obtain to not comply with the Medicaid Act as it appears in its statutory form. Okay, So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about a waiver. It is permission from the Secretary of HHS to essentially violate the law of Medicaid, typically to further some good health policy purpose improve access to care, improve delivery of services, increase coverage. Sometimes it is a quest for keeping costs down, but only if the first three aren't in jeopardy, right? So waivers unto themselves, A, predate Medicaid. They've been around since about 1962 for anything in the Social Security Act when we're talking about Section 1115 waivers. But B, they are meant to allow the states to experiment with doing better than the federal law baseline does. And so what we see in 1115 is this language. It's very specific, right? In the case of any experimental pilot or demonstration project, which in the judgment of the secretary is likely to assist in promoting the objectives of this chapter. Which chapter? Medicaid is included in that. What is Medicaid's statutory purpose? For the purpose of enabling each state as far as practicable under the conditions in such state to furnish medical assistance. Furnish medical assistance. These are the statutory provisions we have to work with when we're thinking about waivers. And so what has that meant over time? Well, lots of things. And and I think it's important to recognize, again, this isn't a red state, blue state binary. There are many things happening under the umbrella of Medicaid waivers. Some of them, to jump ahead for a moment, have been things like the states that chose to expand Medicaid before the ACA's drop dead date of January 1, 2014. Those were states that were already engaged in experiments to expand coverage. Those same states decided to engage in capturing federal money that became available in 2010. Those states, all of them except one, ended up seeking waivers to expand Medicaid early. Well, that's one kind of waiver, right? Is it a blue state waiver? I suppose. But again, it's too simple. Because if you look at what else is going on, beyond just simply did the state expand or not, we have eligibility and enrollment instructions. We have work requirements, which I'll dive into more in just a moment. We have benefit restrictions, co-pays and healthy behavior incentives. But then we also have behavioral health. What falls under behavioral health? Substance use disorders. And states of all colors are trying to figure out what to do about substance use disorders right now and using waivers to do it. We have delivery system reform. This also involves things like accountable care organizations, which are an attempt to create health homes for the poor people who cannot create them for themselves, right? 
So we can see that there are many different kinds of experiment that are possible within Medicaid. Do we need the executive order that told us that states need more choice and flexibility? No. Why? Because 1115 has existed since 1962. So the executive order to some degree is redundant, but it was also an important signal. So you get the idea, right? Many things going on with waivers. Controversy arises particularly around what everybody's calling work requirements. Now, CMS is trying to call it community engagement, but there's good reason to reject that frame. So what does it mean? CMS is telling us, us being the general public, that it is good to work and that working makes you healthy. Okay. Now, it seems the underlying assumption there is that people who are enrolled in Medicaid are not working. Amongst those who are not working, they tend to consider themselves to be in fair to poor health. And as people consider themselves to be in better health, their ability to work increases. Now, as it turns out, this self-reporting reflects studies that have been performed for years that indicate that a person who is healthy is better able to obtain a job and keep it. Fair enough. Fairly intuitive. Now, what about the people who aren't working? All of the studies from all of the various think tanks indicate that somewhere around two-thirds of non-elderly, non-minor Medicaid beneficiaries are working or in a household with a full-time or part-time worker. Okay. What are the other people doing? Well, they're either ill or disabled, or they're taking care of the home or the family, or they're going to school, or they're retired, or they couldn't find work or other. So where is the play? It's in the couldn't find work or other. This chart, which is from the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, shows about 9% of people accounted for in that in those two categories. Other charts you look at might indicate about 7% of people. That's about the range. And so what that tells us is that the controversy over work requirements, sort of like the exchanges, frankly, is generating a a lot of light and heat, but not for a lot of people. So the question is, why so much light and heat? Why are we who oppose work requirements so worked up about it? And why are the people who think that it's a good idea also very fervent about this idea, right? These are important questions to answer because this is a huge debate right now. Part of the reason the ACA exists is that people cannot get insurance through employment anymore. And it is significantly linked, this fact, to how much money you make. And that is why we have certain numbers that show up in the ACA. They're not random. So if you make less than 400% of the federal poverty level, your chances from there down to 0% nosedive as to whether or not you are going to be able to obtain employer-sponsored health insurance. And if you're a part-time worker, it's even significantly more small. So the question is, why do we need Medicaid for people who are working? Because people who are working in low-income jobs, hourly jobs, low-wage jobs, part-time jobs, they do not, they cannot get health insurance as an employment benefit. And the reason I raise this, because again, it's something probably most people in this room know, is that this is part of the narrative. The narrative that CMS created after Congress did not repeal or replace the ACA in 2017, CMS issued a letter telling states it welcomed their efforts to implement work requirements for Medicaid expansion populations and maybe other populations. Kentucky had submitted a waiver with those elements in 2016 under the Obama administration. They were at that time maybe the fourth or fifth state to attempt to get work requirements as part of the Medicaid expansion 
deal. The strange thing for Kentucky was that it had already expanded under the prior governor. So this was the first state that had opted in with a straight ACA version of Medicaid expansion that was attempting to change its path by moving to a waiver that looked more like what the new governor wanted. Now, Governor Bevin had campaigned on no expansion, no ACA, anti-Obamacare. The truth is the people of Kentucky probably didn't really understand that Obamacare was connect, that Obamacare was Medicaid expansion in the state. More than 400,000 people became covered through Medicaid expansion in Kentucky. And many of those people voted for Governor Bevin because they didn't understand what they were voting for. And I'm not saying that the people of Kentucky are stupid, quite the opposite. In fact, part of the ground that I cover with Abby in the Stanford Law Review piece that we had just come out is what we dub secret boyfriend federalism. Secret boyfriend federalism is the idea that the federal government knowingly gave states cover to engage in the ACA and Medicaid expansion so that they wouldn't take the political fallout from engaging in unpopular presidential politics. But what happened was that people didn't know what they were voting for when someone like Matt Bevin came along and said, let's get rid of Obamacare. People were like, yeah, we hate Obamacare, not realizing that that was the source of their coverage. So secret boyfriend federalism on the one hand has made it so that states have expanded like Indiana because they were given cover to do so. They name it things like HIP 2.0 and HHS didn't tout it. They let Indiana go off and say, look, we're doing it our way. But a state like Kentucky was different because they had already expanded and they had already expanded under the ACA as it's drafted. So what we see is that Kentucky comes along with this waiver proposal, and these are the key features of it. Work or community engagement, premiums that can lead to lockout periods if you don't pay them, reporting rules for work and other things, elimination of retroactive eligibility, typically under the Medicaid Act, you go back three months, high cost sharing for people who are impoverished, and tiered benefits, meaning that if you can't pay your premiums and you're at a certain income level, then you don't get dental or eye care because obviously you don't need your eyes or teeth. So Kentucky's plan was to roll this out in clusters of counties that roughly reflect where most of the jobs actually are. So for example, Jefferson County, that's where Louisville is, or Fayette County, that's where Lexington is. Or if you look at the very tippy top, the July 1 Northern Kentucky, right across the river from Cincinnati. So these are places where a lot of work, a lot of industry, where there's a lot to be had. Okay, that makes sense. The rest of the state reflects a slower rollout period. Now, I don't want to say anything more about this because July 1 has come and gone and they're not rolling anything out. Why is that? Well, hello, Stuart Viezar. So CMS issues this letter saying we're going to approve work requirements. States bring it on. Kentucky's waiver is, a, is approved the next day. A couple weeks later, NHELP leads the charge, bringing 15 plaintiffs to challenge the approval of Kentucky's waiver. As this litigation is progressing, Indiana, Arkansas, and New Hampshire all have work requirements approved as well. So there's a lot at stake in this litigation. Now, what is happening in this litigation? It's frankly everything. The plaintiffs challenged everything. They challenged both the law and the policy of work requirements, right? So the court had to make a decision. They had to decide, they, he, Judge Boisberg, had to decide whether to engage the policy questions. I would say that largely he decided not to. The opinion is very much about what the law provides. And that was probably the right strategy, but we can talk about what you think about that. So, as I said, we know what Section 1115 does, right? The Secretary has a lot of authority to approve waiver applications, but they have to further the purposes of Medicaid to furnish medical assistance. Well, what does it mean to furnish or provide medical assistance? Judge Boasberg says paying 
for care. The goal of health and well-being is not enough. The whole reason that this program exists is to pay for care so that poor people can be mainstreamed into American medicine. If you don't pay for their care, you cannot guarantee their health. So if you're saying you're going to take away their care, we need to see a serious analysis of what that means in the context of providing medical assistance. The court ultimately holds that the secretary of HHS acted in an arbitrary and capricious fashion because he did not evaluate in any way Kentucky's own assessment that 95,000 people over five years would lose coverage under Medicaid. Kentucky's hope is that those people, because they're working, will get insurance through their jobs. But one of the ways that you can satisfy the work requirement for Kentucky is to be doing community engagement, which means basically volunteer work. Well, volunteer work doesn't come with employment benefits, and it doesn't come with any kind of training for dealing with employment benefits, which is the other justification that Kentucky put forth. People need to know how to have private health insurance. So the court says not only does this not look like providing medical assistance, but also the Medicaid expansion population, the population that gained eligibility under the ACA, they're the same as everyone else who's a Medicaid beneficiary. You can't treat them differently just because they're the expansion population. Why is that? Because when NFIB versus Sibelius made Medicaid expansion optional, it left the mandatory category of eligibility in the statute. And it still describes this category of eligibility as people who get all of the benefits that everybody else gets in Medicaid. It is still the law. And so the court says the law tells us this expansion population, doesn't matter if it looks different from traditional Medicaid, it is still a population that gets all the benefits of Medicaid. So the thing to understand about the court's arbitrary and capricious reasoning is that, again, it doesn't engage with any of the policy making that CMS is working on. Not talking about whether or not work promotes health, not talking about whether or not work promotes dignity and self-sufficiency, not talking about whether Medicaid is only for the truly vulnerable, as CMS has put it, not talking about whether costs are too high, right? These are all of the reasons that CMS folded into its letter approving work requirement proposals. Really what's going on is the law of Medicaid says no, but it left the door open. HHS turned around and said, we still favor this policy, and now there's a new 30-day notice and comment period going on on Kentucky's waiver, which didn't change at all. Why? Because there's a lot riding on this. All of these states are interested in or have work requirements in place. All of them. Virginia just expanded Medicaid, but the state legislature said only if there's work requirements, right? So the policy question here gets really hard and kind of turns on its head what the Trump administration is after. Because if a state that would not otherwise want to expand Medicaid is now willing to expand Medicaid because it can engage in work requirements, then in fact, we see a shoring up of the ACA because if you get expansion in every state, that makes Medicaid more popular, not less. Because once people have it, they want it. That's what every Every poll shows. Once they have touched the program, they want to have the coverage it offers. So it may, in fact, actually help the ACA. What comes next? So we know some people are calling for Medicare for all. One national program. As I've said in other places, universalism is stronger when the program that supports it is itself uniform. That's the value in Medicare for all, right? The trouble with what others are suggesting, Medicaid for all, is that it has the same problems as the current Medicaid program. And one of those problems is the federal 
federalism of the Medicaid program. The fact that states are invited to be part of Medicaid can be both its saving grace and its problem. It makes it more administratively expensive. It makes it more administratively burdensome. It makes it so that depending on where you live, you get different health care. Whether you have a heart attack in Nevada or Massachusetts makes a difference to your health outcomes, which doesn't make a lot of sense in the context of real medical care, not health and well-being. So the question is, what do we do with these ideas? So what we have here is some states where Medicaid for All legislation is circulating. It was actually vetoed by the governor in Nevada not that long ago. There was a bill that was killed in Maryland. Does it have legs? This administration is not going to give states more money to expand Medicaid. This isn't the Bush administration, which actually made it possible for Romney care to exist in Massachusetts through a Medicaid waiver. That's not the world we're living in right now. And I worry about what the federalism of all of this does. I have much more than I can cover here, but let me hint at it. Why should a working age person not be expected to do something in exchange for what they're provided? One thing I want to clarify is that this requirement is for those that Medicaid was not originally designed for. Go through any community anywhere. I promise you will see at least one sign where people want an able bodied person to apply. This phrase, able-bodied, should make us squirm. And it's not just because it relates to the poor laws, which I've talked about before. It is because it was also used to auction slaves. There is an implicit racism in the use of this phrase. Now, in a state like Kentucky, it is much harder to get at that because the state is frankly mostly white. Same thing with New Hampshire, right? And so I don't mean to say that anyone who believes that work requirements are a good idea is a racist. But we should be careful with continuing to use language that is divisive, language that is itself the language of people who intended to separate out the deserving from the undeserving, language that has been used to decide the value of people in society. It should make us uncomfortable. There are many, 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 too many politicians and policymakers using the language of able-bodied right now. It is not medical language. It is not scientific language. It is purely political language. And it is not, frankly, meaningful unless we have historical context to understand it. And this is our historical context, unfortunately. And that was the week in health law. A big thank you to uh, Professors Huberfeld, Bach, and Bard for joining me. You can find Professor Huberfeld on Twitter at nhuberfeld1. And Jennifer Bard is at Prof Bard Law. The panel was great fun. We hope that you enjoy it. Uh, recall that the show notes are at tour.com where you can f- download our slide sets. I'm Nicholas Terry. That's N-I-C-O-L-A-S-T-E-R-R-Y on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>